Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So I am here. It is a Sunday afternoon, and I'm having my coffee. I am thinking about just what I've been up to over this past week. And definitely one of the highlights was that it was the finale of The Great British Bake Off. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with this particular show, it is a glorious show filmed here in the United Kingdom. And the basic idea is to showcase all of the glories of Britishness through the medium of baking. And so it starts off with, I don't know, what is it, 10, 12 people? Um, and, you know, it's your classic game show, not game show, but, you know, talent show format where, uh, you know, they compete in tasks and each week um, someone goes home. Eventually there's a finale and a winner. And one of the things that sets the Bake Off apart, besides the fact that it's about baking and Britishness, is that it is joyously and unabashedly banal. The winner doesn't get a hundred thousand grand. They get a fucking cake stand with uh, the Great British Bake Off logo on. And so there's something there's something about it that uh, it isn't this hyper competitive. Someone's gonna get a contract and they're gonna you know make it big and and the way it's always done in America, right? Part of the Britishness of it is that at the end of the day, uh, you just did it to to do it. And uh, you participated and then you go home and then you get on with your life and maybe you have a few more Instagram followers. But at any rate, uh, and this is where the spoilers come in. For those of you who, who've, who've watched the series but uh, have not watched the final, uh, you will be unsurprised to learn that Laura creates something that looks a mess but tastes great. Um, but uh, ultimately, the person who was the best baker won. And this was this young man currently in university named Peter. And I've spent a good deal of time this week uh, thinking about Peter because there's something special about... So as I give you the backstory on him, he uh, is this young lad from Scotland, uh, got into baking really early on in life. He's been watching... He's, you know, he's, as he says, he's watched the Bake Off all, you know, for half his life. And... What was really cool about seeing him win is that it had been a dream of his to do that, to go on Bake Off, to do his best, and ultimately to win since he was a wee child. And to see somebody who you have developed a connection with, having watched them for 10 weeks, um, get to live out their dream, that's not something that happens every day, and it's definitely not something that happens every day in 2020. And to, to see someone for whom this year under these specific circumstances, uh, the show was recorded this summer, uh, in, in a, an isolated tent, um, he was able to do the thing that he has been aiming at for his entire young life. And that is never not cool to see. I took uh, a lot of inspiration and a lot of solace from that. And uh, I just think it's so cool when you can see someone do that. That was uh, the sort of emotional highlight for me. And I'm looking at this next week, and um, I've actually got a big, big, big milestone that I'm about to hit. I am so at, at Oxford, they like naming things differently, but um, 
I have a big milestone coming at the beginning of January called my transfer of status. And this, it's essentially your quals in any other PhD program, but it is where you go from you know being admitted into the program where they're like, okay, we'll give you a shot to uh, once you pass this phase, we're like, okay, we actually think that you're going to do this. We think that you're going to dissertate. You're going to come up with something uh, and probably graduate, whether uh, you know on time or whatever, right? So it's it's this it's this sort of middle middle of the program milestone, and um, uh, my big push for that starts uh, tomorrow Monday morning at nine a.m. Uh, I'm not going to do any of the other bullshit that I usually do, except for this podcast. Um, and I'm going to focus in on that. And I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I think that I'm in a good place. Uh, I just need to put my head down, get my uh, last sort of data scored away, get a, uh, a, a, an analysis done on it, write it all up, get it presentation worthy. Uh, so basically the entire thing, like pretty much the entire thing, but I, I, I'm feeling good about it, man. I'm feeling good about it. And uh, I will keep you updated with progress on that uh, as it's it's going in. Um, I'm also, I'm also, you know, here's the thing. So last, last week was uh, the 40th interview I've done for this podcast. I've been doing it for little over a year now. I think the first episode was right at the beginning of November of 2019. And, uh, you know, I, I started off, right? I had, you know, everything in place, had all the momentum, had, uh, you know, a month's worth of, of backlog where I could, you know, I was, I was ahead of schedule and everything. And then, you know, I really, I got hit by the pandemic, right? And don't, I, I haven't been able to recover that backlog. It's like, you know, today's Sunday, I'm, this podcast is going to come out on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, I, I did these uh, interviews, uh, the, the interview you can hear today this week, right? So um, very last minute stuff going on here. And so right now, I'm feeling like I got good momentum that I'm going to come in and really start to get back on track with being on top of my shit when it comes to the pod, right? So it starts with getting guests, right? That is the basic, that is that is the, the, the wheel that needs to turn to get this going, right? So I'm trying to start from that very first, um, you know, thing that I got to do, which is like, okay, look, so what usually happens is I, you know, go through spurts, right? So invite a bunch of people uh, and then I'm like, great, oh, I got interviews for the next, you know, month and a half, don't have to worry about it. And then two months later, I'm like, oh fuck, I need more interviews. And then you're gonna get spurred. And then that's 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 sort of that's fine. It gets the job done, but it's not sustainable. It's not systematic. I'm trying to get back to that system where I'm ahead of schedule, uh, down to just knowing what I need to do and doing it and having that done every week. And so uh, here's the numbers, right? It's very simple. I'm trying to do 1.5 interviews per week. That's what I like to do in terms of just, uh, you know, the, the rate at which I enjoy doing them. So, you know, one interview, one week, two interviews, the next. And, uh, 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 right. So that, that's what I, that's what I, and you know, right. So, I mean, that, that gives me like a good cushion for reviewing, for releasing one interview a week, which is my goal. And then, uh, so what do I need to do that? Basically, uh, I have an acceptance rate. So what's the probability of you know someone saying yes if I invite them to be on the show? That's about 50%, uh, give or take. It's right around half people that I invite say yes, half of them say no. Uh, I can't, it's really difficult to say 
uh, to predict who's going to be a yes and who's going to be no because a lot of them are external factors that have nothing to do with me. Uh, coffee break. But um, I know that I need to send three emails per week to potential guests, three cold emails, uh, in order to get those 1.5 interviews. So now it's like, boom, I am scheduling those emails in advance where every t- I've, every Tuesday, so I've got this theory, right? So it's like, what time of the week, there's literally no empirical base for this, but what time of the week are people most likely to be inclined to say yes to do something? I think it has to be Tuesday afternoon, right? Because Monday, everyone's like, okay, it's the first day of the week, I'm already fucking behind, not saying yes to anything. Uh, but I feel like by Tuesday, you have a little bit of momentum where you're like, okay, you're like, I can actually do it. I, like, I'm... I like I okay I I've got some I've got some good stuff going for me. I feel like you're a little bit you know you got that energy. Um and then by Friday you're uh you know maybe a little little tired from the week, reticent to uh, reluctant to take on new new commitments. So I think that Tuesday afternoon um is right where that spot is. And so have those emails scheduled uh 3 a week um, to, to, to fly on Tuesday afternoon, local time from whoever's getting them. And, you know, then as I continue to build up that bank, like I'll just have that, uh, you know, several weeks into the future and then, you know, I'll get those emails when people, people respond to them and that will set the whole thing in motion. I'll be in business and I'll have that system in place. I am bullish on that. All right. Well, that's enough for me. Let's talk about my guest this week. I had a nice chat with Michael McCullough. He likes to be called Mike, um, as opposed to Mickey Inslicht, who he talked to on uh, Two Psychologists, Four Beers, which he suggested a name change to. Uh, uh, two drinks, four shrinks, no, what is it? Two two shrinks, four drinks. Two shrinks, four drinks, great name. Uh, he didn't have any uh, alternative names for my show, unfortunately. At any rate, um, Mike McCulloch is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. His lab is the Evolution and Human Behavior Lab. He did his PhD uh, in uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. And then he has a new book out uh, called The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a Numeral Code, alias Why We Give a Damn, uh, previous alias Why We Don't Give a Damn. And this project has been many years in the making for Mike. We talk a lot about where it came from uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's there's something, I'm not sure how he'll feel about me sharing this, but, you know, I want, I, I, I just want to, I want, yeah, I think this is worth being honest about. Mike actually reached out to me to be on the show. And uh, eventually uh, I had him on. And I share that um, because you'll notice he's been on some other podcasts. I assume the same sort of thing happened. And I think that's really cool. I actually have a huge amount of respect for that because if I had a book that I was, um, going out there trying to sell copies of, I would do the same thing. And I really think that this is something that we don't, that we aren't open enough, open enough about in science and academia is that when you do something cool, part of, uh, the back end of once that cool thing is mostly done, you have to go out there and tell people about it. It's not going to, there's so much cool stuff out there. Unless you actually tell people what you did, uh, they're just not going to be that likely to uh, click on it for themselves, no matter how great the content is. And that's something that I think as scientists, we tend to think, okay, well, if the the, the content, if the product, if the paper, if the study is good enough, uh, it'll sell itself. And 
maybe there's something to be said for that in scientific studies, but certainly once you start to get out of academia into the world of books, into the world of, of, of content, um, where you are, are trying to just engage people on this broader scale, you have to have that, that, that marketing plan. And, um, I think it's really cool, uh, that, Mike had that, um, and I hope that other people will will think of me uh, when they have a book that's in this this space of ideas and and want to talk about the process behind it and their career and 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 what they're interested in, because it was fun to talk to Mike, and uh, I'm sure that everyone else who he's talked to about the book has uh, enjoyed hearing about it. So anyway, that's the background. Um, on what I've been up to, on what I'm going to be up to, and then uh, my conversation with Mike. So I hope that uh, you will enjoy what we uh, have here, and I will be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. And then without further ado, here is Mike McCullough. I'd be curious to know, uh, can you think back and remember the first time you got really excited by an idea that you were just like, oh, wow, this just sort of, you know, got grabbed by it. And that that was, you know, stuck in your head. Uh, and that that was sort of what put put all this in motion for you. Can you think back and remember any time like that? I sure can. Uh, when I was in college, <clears throat> I got through the mail a packet from... Um, a researcher uh, who was a PhD student who was working on, uh, I didn't know at the time, uh, obviously, but I got a, a packet of questionnaires, like self-report questionnaires. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. Um, uh, but she was doing um, just correlational work on uh, forgiveness. And, uh, you know, I filled out the questions in her questionnaire packet and they were like, you know, think about a time somebody harmed you or whatever. And I filled out these questions and then there were some questions about, I don't know, moral judgments or religion or something. I can't actually remember, but, you know, I sent the packet back, but it got me thinking, wow, you know, I don't know anybody in psychology who's even ever like talked about forgiveness in psychology, you know, as a, as a basic psychological process. And so that really stuck with me because I remember thinking, I can't believe you can do research on this. I didn't even know it was really possible at that point. I mean, I'm just an undergraduate, you know, taking social psychology and cognitive psychology and, you know, applied behavior analysis and stuff like that. So to realize suddenly, you know, even that was certainly not something you were going to hear about in social psychology. It just wasn't, it just wasn't on people's uh, radar screens. So I remember thinking this would be cool to do research on in the future. So when I started looking around for PhD programs, I was, I was really interested in religion back then. I mean, I still am, but that was something I really was interested in learning more about. Um, I ended up working with an advisor um, at, at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is where I got my PhD. And we were talking about research projects. And he was sort of asking, you know, well, what do you want to do your thesis on? And he had actually written um, kind of a paper about the, the possible applications of forgiveness in psychology and, and in particularly in counseling and psychotherapy. And he said, 
you know, you can work on religion and mental health uh, or this, this other thing I'm doing, or you could work on the forgiveness stuff. And, and the way he talks about it, you know, I said, well, I think I want to do some research on the forgiveness stuff. And the way he tells the story, his name's Everett Worthington, is uh, that his heart sank when, when I chose the forgiveness stuff because he hadn't really done any empirical research on it at that point. And, you know, for him, it was just sort of something he'd written a conceptual paper about at that point. He had an interest in me doing the other stuff, but he gets up, you know, from his chair and goes over to this closet. Back in the day, you know, reprints were this physical thing where you had to order from the journal, you know, like, hey, I had this article published and they would say, do you want to buy 20 copies of it? You know, like hard physical paper copies. And so you always bought some. And I remember he had a closet with his reprints in them, just like ordered on these shelves. And he goes to his closet and pulls out this one paper and says, all right, well, this is what I've written on it. I guess we should start here. So um, that's really how I got into my first work on interpersonal forgiveness and trying to figure out, you know, how you measure it, how you might use it to help people in counseling and so forth. But to me, it was really exciting because there was nothing on the topic, really. You know, there were sort of a handful of articles and that was it. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so what, what was it specifically about forgiveness? Was it just the sense that this was sort of like a blue ocean of unexplored territory that, you know, sort of like, wow, like you can like scientifically investigate this? Or was there something actually about forgiveness itself where, you know, that was something that you had been thinking about personally or experienced? What, 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 yeah, what's, what was it about forgiveness? At the time, I was uh, a very, I was very heavily involved in the church, mm. and uh, you know, at that point in my life, like I was a very religiously committed dude. So a very Jesusy and, sense of of forgiveness. That's the the the, the core of it. Was it, that it, it was it was talked about so much yeah. in the religious that. circles that I traveled in. And, you know, I mean, it's just like one of the core virtues of Christianity. You know, you should be forgiving people, you know, when, you know, it's a, it's critical for maintaining a community. You know, it's like all over the particularly the, the, the Christian Bible, the New Testament. So um, I it never crossed my mind that it could be something that was empirically tractable. It just literally never occurred to me. So when I, you know, I'm, I was interested even then in like, how could we bring psychology like I was writing all of my papers in my religious studies courses and my psych courses about the interface of religious studies and psychology and so I was always thinking you know how could we you know how could these two disciplines learn from each other so when I came across this questionnaire I just for the first time it it it, it crossed my mind that these sort of traditionally classical religious virtues that are made sensible through religious frameworks. You could do basic bread and butter, you know, uh, down in the laboratory, empirical psychology research on. So for me, it just made me realize there was this entire space, this entire psychological space of things that had been talked about not only in, in religious texts and in religious traditions, but in philosophical traditions um, that had been talked about in the humanities and in history, just concepts that had never really been explored. So forgiveness was one of those. And another one we turned to um, 
shortly, you know, after once I'd gotten an academic job and all that, was with a um, a colleague uh, of uh, and now a good friend of mine, Bob Emmons, at um, University of California Davis, just up the road from me, um, was gratitude. And gratitude was another one of these things where, you know, there was just no research on it. Um, you could find, you know, a paper here and there where somebody had tried to measure gratitude as sort of an emotional response to, you know, something that had happened to them in the laboratory or whatever. But the idea of filling out a theory of gratitude, you know, Robert Trivers had written about it in his classic uh, 1974 paper on um, the evolution of um, ultra, uh, pardon me, um, uh, reciprocal cooperation, but he just had it in there as a throwaway line. Like, may, you know, maybe the emotion of gratitude is this thing that, you know, keeps reciprocal helping going. But there was nothing. So it was just, wow, we could, I mean, part of it was just purely um, instrumental, you know, self-focused, you know, opportunism. You know, here's here's an interesting topic. No one's doing any research on it. That means we can do any research. It doesn't even have to be good research. And, you know, we can <laughs> we can make an impact in this field. So it was part opportunism. It was part realizing, wow, there's this entire vocabulary of morality and virtue that no one's digging into. Humility is another one. I, I haven't done work on humility. But that's another one that just very, very few people were talking about outside of like clinical theorists um, who were looking at it as sort of the flip side of narcissism, narcissism and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, hmm. So one, one thing I'd be curious to know about is, do you feel like there are big ways in which your uh, background um, uh, with religion influenced your yourself as a psychologist, not even just in the topics that you studied, but do you feel like that way of experiencing the world, which it sounds like uh, was a big part of your life for a long time, it sounds like is, is no longer, uh, you know, no longer a Christian. Um, that's, yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, so is there, do you feel like there's a way in which that shaped the way you interact with psychological phenomena? Well, it, having been a very deeply committed Christian, I think was a real gift for me in the sense that even though that's, that's no longer important to me in my personal life, I remember what it feels like for it to be really important yeah. in one's personal life. So I remember what it feels like to think that there is a, you know, there is a superintending divine intelligence that actually cares about me and cares about my welfare and cares about my well-being and my development and, you know, cares about my, you know, how I conduct myself with other people. And so that idea, you know, when you, when you feel that feeling, and that that feeling of assuredness and concern from the you know the author of the universe it's extremely powerful i mean this is this is getting trite now but yeah you can say yeah. these things but if you haven't experienced them i think it's really hard to to get your mind around what we're talking about so i think for me as someone who's interested in studying religion that was an um, you know i feel like i'm drawing on something that 
folks who didn't come from that background just can't access. Certainly, I can see how you went from, you know, sort of that being a very formative early stage in your life to writing a book uh, on the kindness of strangers. Uh, I can I can see uh, a little bit of a, of a deep link there that I'm excited to unpack a little bit. But yeah, I, I have a I, I have a similar background where I was very religious for an important period of life. Um, and then in college, uh, decided not to be a Christian anymore. And the thing that I always say about it is that um, becoming a Christian was the second best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Deciding not to be a Christian was the first. Um, oh, okay. uh, and so I, I value both of those decisions a lot. And I think I've gotten a lot out of both of them. But yeah, I, I personally think that there is a there can be really strong links between how one thinks about the mind uh, and uh, human interaction. And of course, uh, you know, if if you have some sort of deep-seated uh, appreciation of the kind of stuff that you're talking about. So that's really interesting to hear about what that's looked like for you. Anyway, let's maybe get back a little bit more on track to scientific uh, sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, so that's, that's interesting. So you um, were able to put your finger on a topic uh, that didn't have a lot of work already done in it and so you were able to sort of um uh just get started on it so it sounds like a little bit in a sense you went most students would maybe you know start by furthering some of their advisors work but since your advisor had only done like a limited amount of it you just went straight into sort of developing your own uh research agenda so um uh what what role did your uh, advisor play and what were, who are the people who were most influential in your early thinking on uh, these sort of topics and what are what are the lessons that you you sort of took for them both as a mentor and as a scientist I really appreciate the chance to answer that question because um, I I worked with I think one of the greatest advisors ever in in history um, Ev Worthington was my PhD advisor and and I didn't work I mean just to be really clear. I did not work alone on this on my you know my research in, research in graduate school. He was re he got really excited about it as well. So we worked together. Yeah, I mean it was my it was my master's thesis and my dissertation, but he he was really heavily involved and really heavily invested in it. So um, he was. I really got lucky in in working with him because we saw the world in the same way. Um, he also was a committed Christian, uh, still is. Um, it's still very, very important to him, and it, it continues to shape his worldview. Um, but it, but he also was just a good, it is a just a very good, stable, reliable, conscientious, principled guy, and uh, very unselfish with his time, very productive, um, you know, extraordinarily productive but uh, very committed to his students' development in a way that not every advisor is. Um, so actually, um, when, when, I, when I started graduate school, um, you know, I was telling another student who I was working with and that student said, you know, well, you're gonna be fine because all, all of his students are fine. So, um, you know, I, I, I really appreciated that and, and um, 
you know, from an interpersonal point of view, um, it was a really, really stimulating opportunity to get to know someone and see what a scientific life looked like. You know, I, I think that's the thing that's really hard for people to see who haven't had a lot of exposure to that as undergraduates or, or whatever. You know, what does it look like to be a scientist, and, you know, a senior scientist? So it was, you know, he was a great role model. He also um, was really, you know, really committed to data, you know, taught, taught me to, you know, ask myself, you know, what do the data show on this or that topic? So that was uh, an important relationship to me, his enthusiasm um, and, and at the same time, his groundedness was really good for somebody who was um, really eager, really am ambitious, possibly a little bit hyperactive. You know, it was, it was a good match for me interpersonally. Um, so I think in graduate school, he had a huge influence. Um, I interacted with a social psychologist as well um, at Virginia Commonwealth, uh, who was important for me to teach for teaching me, you know, um, basically how you do laboratory experiments. I mean, we're pretty deep into the, to the, the nerdy weeds at this point, um, you, you know, you and I are, but that, you know, that was an important relationship for me. Um, I, in my, I, I was in, I, I was at a university called Louisiana Tech University for my first year out uh, after, um, after getting my PhD. Um, and I only stayed for a year um, for a number of reasons, but I ended up actually leaving academia and going into the nonprofit world. And I worked, I just did research there on religion and health. That was our whole ambit to just explore the relationships between those two things. And my, I had a, my boss there was amazing, incredibly good researcher, incredibly good person, you know, very, very productive. And he too was all about the data. So those were those were two really key relationships um, with a lot of commonalities. Um, both very decent people who were also really committed empirical scientists. So they changed me a lot, or it shaped me a lot, I should say. Right. So was there was it always clear to you that you wanted to be an academic, or did that come from somewhere specifically? Or uh, and then is is there ever a time where you thought about quitting? Yeah. Um, I originally, you know, once I was a couple of years into my, my undergraduate degree, um, I thought I would go do counseling, actually. I um, mean, a lot of the people that I identified with, you know, in the Department of Psychology were, were counselors. So I thought that was the direction I was going to go. Um, but I was really good at statistics. You know, I was, I was really good at research methods. You know, that was, it, as it happens, that was the stuff that I was um, that was stuff that I was, that I did well in. So I got some advice from a, one of the career advisors there that, you know, I ought to consider a, a career in academia. And I thought, well, what is that? You know, I didn't, I did, I just didn't have any background. So she, you know, she explains what, what these people, you know, these professors of mine do in the time they're not professing, you know, when they're not, you know, lecturing and stuff. And that sounded really interesting. So I knew I was interested in counseling research. And so that's the, the, the direction I headed. And that's how I ended up at VCU. But after the first year, I, I really did have second thoughts. And um, I was thinking about the other things I liked. And I actually thought of dropping out and going to film school or something like that. 
something a little bit more on the art, you know, artistic angle. Um, that probably would probably would have been disastrous because I don't know that I have any any you know um, natural endowments in that direction. But it really intrigued me, and I I like film, and I like you know I I thought that would be an interesting lifestyle. But my advisor talked me out of it, saying just give it one more year and just see if you you know. Then what, you what can you... drop out and go to film school. Just one more yeah, year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then you can then you can do film school if you still want that. Okay. That's probably yeah. good advice. Yeah, just hang in there. Just give is it that, one more year. Is that advice that you found yourself giving to students throughout the years? Like for just one more year, then you can go to film school. So yeah, sort of. I, I had one student who um I was in a department uh, before I came to UC San Diego uh last year. I was in a department uh, at the University of Miami that was very clinically focused. Um, we had, it's a, you know, excellent, outstanding uh, department in um, clinical psychology and in health psychology. And in some ways, those are the focal points of the department. And I was advising a clinical student who had worked his way through all of the clinical activities. You know, he'd done, seen his clients, he'd done his um practica and he was a year from finishing and he he said i i hate this work i hate doing this stuff i hate putting on a tie i hate driving down to you know to the va hospital i just don't enjoy this i think i want to re-specialize just doing basic personality social cognitive psychology research and um you know that's a little late in the game, right? You're in your fourth year or something like that of a five-year, you know, a PhD program. And so, although that's my life, you know, I don't do anything clinically related and haven't in 20 years. Um, I, 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 my advice to him was, you know, you're, you're getting, I, I, I understand your passion for this and I can see how you've been sort of, you know, born again into, you know, thinking about this approach, but you are, you're a, I just want to be really clear with you. You are a year away from a credential that will enable you to make a living forever. You know, a clinical, a PhD in clinical psychology opens, I mean, opens some doors to a wonderful, prosperous career. And he was a year from that. And, you know, so I put it to him, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, I guess the best outcome you can hope for by giving up this degree and pursuing, you know, a, 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 um, a career that's more focused on basic psychological research is you go on to have a great career. Um, and, but, you know, the worst case is, you know, you, you, because of this late start you're getting, things don't work out or take a lot longer than you thought. So can you not finish this PhD in clinical uh, rather than kind of moving away from that, can you not just tick all those boxes and then re-specialize? And he didn't want to do that, you know. Um, but ultimately, the joke was on me because he did do exactly, he did manage to do exactly what he wanted to do and has ended up with a wonderful, wonderful, really fulfilling career as a uh, cognitive scientist, cognitive psychologist. So it ended well, but I, but I did... I didn't want to advise him well, rather than just saying, great, come on over, be, you know, do what I do. That seemed like very poor advice to give to someone in, in his situation. 
Yeah, it's interesting that tension between, you know, so there's your area of expertise and what specifically you do uh, and wanting to to balance that, which you can speak to, um, with this other, you know, totally individual person who has to create their own life and their own their own sort of thing. And that's that's a very, very difficult thing. It's something we talk about a lot uh, uh, on this this show. It, it comes up uh, as, as something that everyone has had affect them as a psychology <laughs> researcher and of course, uh, later on in their career, uh, is something they they deal a lot with with their their students and, and whatnot. One of the benefits of being a little bit further along in my, one's career is that um, your career <laughs> advancement becomes less and less interdependent with a PhD students. So you know when you're just starting out, you know you're a couple of years advanced from your, your students and you need them. You need them. You need your, you need students who are going to do the things that are going to make your career advance and they need you for the same reason, you know, so you're, you're kind of your, your fates are yoked in a way um, that, you know, um, can be really hazardous for the students also can be really wonderful for the students. But when you get a little further along, and um, you know, you're not thinking about how do I get tenure or how do I get a promotion to associate professor or full professor. You, you, I think this is a developmental thing where you can put, you have, the, you can if you want to, really work to put the students thriving at heart. So you know, I'm at, the, I'm at the point where, you know, I own, I only take students when I, when I, I think that the timing is right where they can go on to have a, have great jobs. I mean, for me, that's the thing. Can, can, will you be able to go and get a wonderful, fulfilling job? And if I don't feel like the environment is right or the fit isn't right, I, I just kind of say thanks, but no thanks. Because I, I do not want to train students that are going to, you know, after five years, be frustrated or have regrets. So... I think that's a luxury of being, you know, a little bit more advanced in, you know, my career trajectory. So when when do you think the uh, answer to uh, how likely you are to get a, a, a good academic job becomes favorable, right? Isn't that something that just by sort of like a Bayesian, you know, the, the prior probability of getting, of landing the academic job you want is so low? Um, when, when do you, what are the, the telltale signs that you're looking for? Uh, for what you think is is sort of this fortuitous job prospect? Yeah, I, I actually don't think about academic jobs anymore as the as the des- as the as the goal. Hmm. Um, my, Which my is goal, uh, it, coincident with uh, putting the students thriving first, right? For sure. I mean, I I, I there. I think it's much more useful to bring in. St- bring in students and, and encourage them to see the number of things that they could be doing. And basically from day one or at the end of your first year, what is your plan B? What is your plan A? And for every student, that's not for every student, is that going to be academia? But what is, what is it you think you want to do? And then what's the second thing you think you want to do? And then every, you know, regularly, let's, let's, be realistic about how your career is unfolding to see, you know, which of those trajectories is looking 
are, are you know are which of those which could be both of them are looking most promising for you so obviously on the academic side you know what do you need you need specialized knowledge that and you need crit you know you need bona fides you need articles you need you need journal publications some of which you know at least one or two of which by the end should be first authored papers so you have to keep your eye on that i mean for someone who wants an academic job that's the coin of the realm obviously this is you know pretty pretty obvious stuff i'm sure for you and a lot of your listeners um but th but that's really not the way i try to i personally think is the most productive way um, we'd all love to see every one of our students in an academic job, uh, I suppose. Um, but for me, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, there's, there's other places where psychologists are valued. So, you know, I'm thinking more about, well, how do you get the data analysis skills you need? Or how do you get the data science skills? Or how do you learn the cognitive uh, methods you need to work in this industry or in that industry? Um, so long way around to saying, uh, obviously, there needs to be for the academic route. It's about it's about papers. It's about finding a, an interesting area that's exciting, being able to look a couple of steps ahead and see what the rest of the field is is going to value. Hopefully, your advisor is helping with that, um, and then getting those credentials, and then also getting the skills and you know with making sure your advisor is helping you get the resources you need. To, to actualize those possible trajectories. You know, I really like that a lot. I like being explicit about plan A and plan B because I think all of the worst sides of academia come out when you are married to it without any, you know, sort of other other prospects, right? Because I think there's, there is so much that's great about academia. I think a lot of it starts to get killed off when uh, you are just, you know, sort of scrambling after this, the allure of the, the tenure track position. And I think, you know, there's got to be some sort of balance between, okay, it's working, uh, that we're, we're the, like the, the things that you need to get are coming and it's just a matter of time versus like, you know what, realistically, uh, something else is going to lead to uh, not just a job, but a more satisfying life, uh, potentially. And I think being explicit about, okay, we're going to work towards academic um, job because, you know, we're here, we're in academia, let's do that. But let's also have, what are the other things uh, that, that, that you could find joy in doing that other people would value your work in? I don't think we have that conversation nearly enough. I, I think there's a temptation for academics to um, take a, a kind of overweening pride in seeing their students become uh, uh, academics. And I, I don't think for, for most of us, um, it is realistic to imagine that that's going to, that, that that's going to be the fate for most of our students. Um, you know, I've had some success in, in, helping my students who wanted to, to, to go into, you know, professor jobs. But I just don't think that is how, how you, I, I simply don't think that's realistic given the, the current job climate, the number of people who are seeking PhDs 
and the way academia is moving forward. You know, I don't know how many, I, 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 it, it, I think anyone who tells you they know what the future of the professorate is gonna look like are um, just kind of reading tea leaves uh, because I just don't, I don't know that we know. So being prepared, looking forward, I just don't want students thinking, oh, I, oh I, I'm, I failed because I'm not going to go into academia. This was a big failure. Like how stupid is that? Like how terrible is that? You know, that, that we have, you know, we have people come into PhD, get, spend five years working on PhDs and, at the, and then at the end, they feel like they've disappointed somebody. That's terrible. You know, I don't, I, 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 I want to sleep at night. I want to have a clean conscience. I just don't want, stu you know, I don't want people leaving my train, you know, my, you know, five years working with me and feeling like, oh, I didn't end up doing something very good. I want them to feel like they're excited and ready to go out and, you know, have a good life working in something they care about. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, talk about your new book that came out recently. Um, so the first thing, so the book is called The Kindness of Strangers. Uh, and the first thing I want to ask you about it is uh, it was originally conceived uh, as the title why we give a damn, the enigma of generosity in a world of strangers. So at what point in the process did that title get canned? Yeah, actually it had an earlier title, oh, yeah. uh, which is which is the title um, that I actually worked with for years. And that was why we don't give a damn. <laughs> and the, the book started, this is, okay, so career advice. Do not write a book this way. Um, you, it started as a grumpy little book um, where I was hoping to uh, encourage people who think about, you know, evolution and psychology and you know, sort of evolution in public affairs and social science to th really th rethink where our concern for strangers comes from. And it was going to be a negative argument, basically trying to show that our evolved psychological mechanisms that evolved for helping others just cannot possibly explain why we care about strangers. And, um, you know, I was going to do most of what I ended up doing in the first half of the kindness of strangers. But the goal, my plan was to stop there and just show that our attention you know, as a basic cog cognitive matter, our attention doesn't look like it's well designed for causing us to care. Our emotion system doesn't actually look like it's designed very well to cause us to care about strangers. Um, our behavior actually looks like, if anything, we're, we're motivated, as often as not, we're motivated to not care, to find ways to avoid caring about strangers and so forth. So ultimately, I'd, I the plan was to say, uh, we don't, you know, yeah, we care about our friends. We care about people that might be able to help us in the future. Um, we care about our family, but that's sort of the, that's sort of the, as far as the tether goes. Um, so it was very much like uh, a, a stopping point, probably not unlike where um, Richard's, Richard Dawkins got to in his, you know, incredible and incredibly influential um, book the selfish gene, which is to say, we want more altruism in the world, but it's probably not coming out of our evolved psychology for helping others. Um, the goal was to make a book that was taking psychology way more seriously than he wanted to, or or 
probably had the resources to do. Um, but the goal, you know, I thought, well, I'll do a quick review of history. I'll, you know, the last chapter will be about showing sort of that the rise in our concern for the welfare of strangers is just a matter of history. It's, it's something that we can see happening over the past 10 or 12,000 years. But what happened with me was um, I realized that that's where the action was it, uh, in trying to explain this incredible history that you can see proceeding, you know, on sort of a millennium by millennium and then century by century and then decade, decade by decade basis. So well, um, sorry to interrupt, but when, that's okay. yeah. what do you, when you say that's when you figured out where the action was, uh, what, what sort of inspired that? Was that the comments of an editor or an agent? Was that just sort of sitting with this potential manuscript for so long and feeling like you were banging your head against the wall? Where did that insight come from? I was on sabbatical and I was beginning to get materials together to write this chapter. And I realized that I could only do the most superficial hack work if I wanted to do this in a single chapter. I'm going to tell you about the, you know, the, the, you know, the history of our concern for strangers. Uh, and I, I realized that there's just too much rich material uh, in, you know, existing in by, by really A-level historians for me not to interact with it properly. So it just became kind of, I thought I would be drinking out of a garden hose and it turned out to be a fire hose and too much material, too interesting. So that was probably, you know, the, I, I had planned to deliver the book to my editor, editor, uh, pardon me, um, you know, to the book house. Yeah, to my editor in maybe 2015 or something like that, maybe mm. 2016, 2015. And I, I just remember talking with him and saying, look, I think this is going to be a different kind of book. And um, he, he said, well, great. You know, it, it, I, I, I love where you want to take this. I think, it, I think you're right. I think this would be a more exciting book. It would be a more hopeful book and a less grumpy book. And um, so, he, so he was extremely encouraging um, to take more time. And he, he play, you know, played for more time for me with, with the publisher basic books and they were very generous and just sort of saying okay all right um take some more time is it ready yet is it ready yet okay if you need a little more time but you know yeah. we need to get the book eventually right you know so what what had started out as maybe a three-year project became you know, don't tell anybody this but it became a seven-year project <laughs> so uh yeah but that's got to stay but strictly between you and me um, so, uh, that's, that's really what happened. And then it became why we give a damn. And then, you know, I, I'm a, the truth is I'm, I'm a true believer in the, um, um, literary division of labor. And, you know, my philosophy really is I write the book and they sell it and, you know, they come up with the cover and the title. So I, you know, they can't, they're the ones who came up with the kindness of strangers, uh, how a selfish ape invented a new moral code. Um, and I just, I liked it. Um, I had faith that they, they know about what kind of books people are interested in reading. So um, that's, how the, that's how the title changed actually. Yeah. 
not a very interesting story about the title. Um, I no, I feel like that gives let... quite a bit of insight into into the the, the process behind that. Yeah. People, people, there are some people who get a lot more um, territorial about their titles, uh, and they can, you know, sort of be, you know, have reasons for thinking they, they they would prefer doing it one way rather than another. And you know, there can be a lot of concerns. You don't want the title to sound cheesy. You don't want it to sound too you know, sort of of a moment. Um, you want it to have a longer shelf life. There could be a lot of reasons an author might be, you know, quite precious about a title. Well, I think one of them would be that you consider it part of the book. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. And exactly. as the author, you know, as you said, that's what you do. So if you if you consider it to be ontologically part of the book, then <laughs> right, you yeah. would, it stands to reason, care about it. Yes, uh, so maybe it's, yeah. there's well sort said, of an epistemology yeah. uh, difference between you and, and other uh, authors. It, yeah, what is the book? What is yeah, the book? Yeah, what is the, na- what is the nature of, of the, ar- the authorial endeavor? That's right. Yeah. Um, so, right. I guess for me, the book is what's between the covers. Um, so here's so, one thing that I'm interested to ask you about. So you alluded a little bit to this in in, our, in that discussion. But uh, what I'm curious to know is, so the book takes, it sort of starts its course from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, and it goes on this narrative of, you know, this sort of, how do we humans get here, you know, sort of, uh, that, that, that's the story that you're telling. And there's definitely a genre of books that have taken a similar sort of tack, many of them very successfully. Certainly, uh, you can make an argument that Dawkins is the sort of originator of this, and there have been a lot of people who have done different versions of it. So what what is it that you felt you needed to add to this conversation that came out in The Kindness of Strangers? I, I did not think that folks in general who think about the evolution of pro-social behavior and how we can see the psychological mechanisms that natural selection designed to motivate us to pro-social behavior. How did I start this sentence? I didn't think they were grappling adequately with the basic empirical experimental realities that we know about pro-social behavior. Um, I see a, you know where a lot of social scientists, uh, particularly some economists. And, Feel free to uh, name few, names, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I, thank you. Thank you for granting me that freedom. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Feel free to give I, scathing I, reviews of, of other it, people's works. Yeah, I definitely will not do that, uh, but thank you. Um, and 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 some some anthropologists who um, just were interpreting different data than I was. Um, they, they were looking at um, results from a variety of experimental games, for example, that they thought gave um, you know pretty strong evidence that we have pro-social preferences. Um, that we, for example, in a game called the Dictator Game, that we will share. You give someone ten dollars, and you incur, you know invite them to share some of it with a stranger. They will in fact share some of it with a stranger. Um, they took that to be evidence of, um, you know, a kind of pro-social, um, maybe evolved taste for fairness, evolved taste for um, uh, for equity or an, an aversion to inequity. Um, and there were a few of these other games, um, a game called the public goods game, 
where you know you have people working in a group and if you share your private resources with the group those resources get multiplied and then shared out and even shares to other group members and people do do this even though they'd be better off just free riding and letting other people contribute and then getting their share people do in fact make contributions uh, to to building this public good that they all end up benefiting from um, there, there were there are a few of these kind of data points, very well replicated. I mean, these are these are real findings that you see from the lab, that I thought were were getting more attention than they should have, and um, were being interpreted without a lot of regard for the other possible hypotheses for why people are behaving these ways in the lab. You know, why are they sharing with the dictator game? Does it mean they have some sort of genuine bread in the bone evolved concern for the welfare of strangers or for being fair? I thought there were like, a, you know, I was going to say a million, not a million, but I thought there were several other hypotheses for what should be, what could be driving that behavior. Yeah, at least a gazillion Many, or so of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some of which just really have nothing to do with caring about others. They, they have to do with caring about your reputation or caring about, or just wanting to see what would happen in the laboratory or um, believing that this would have, this really would have consequences for, you know, reciprocal relations. Um, so, uh, or people were just making mistakes. They, they really believed that there would be a payoff and they just, maybe were just not very good at doing the math. So I had my doubts about that work. And then I also had this, you know, giant database from cognitive and social psychology suggesting that people are indifferent or maybe even insensate to the, the struggling of other people. Um, here, I, I would probably say that I'm fellow travelers with someone like Paul Bloom, who sees the limitations on empathy um, as, a, as a, an emotion for motivating us to care about others. Um, the bystander effect or, um, you know, the, 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 the parable of uh, Kitty Genovese and the idea that you had all of these bystanders that were indifferent to her welfare um, as she you know, lay dying from an assault. That story is, we know now, we know now is more of a, you know, um, kind of a parable rather than a, a matter of history. But so is but, the Good Samaritan with which you juxtapose yeah, it. That's true. That's, that's very true. So um, they're both useful kind of two, fictions. Uh, in a way. Yeah. Two competing narratives for, you know, thinking about the stuff of human nature. You know, this but, is, you know, this is an aside, if you don't mind, uh, going down it for a second but i actually have a theory that there's a crucial misinterpretation in the good samaritan um and basically it's so the story of the good samaritan as you talk about uh early on in your book is that uh you know so jesus is telling this parable and uh you know so there's this person on the road uh which is incapacitated and then the priest comes by and says, mm, uh, I'm not going to help. The Levite comes by and says, I'm not going to help. And the Samaritan comes by and the Samaritan is the one that helps. So what we take from this is that we should all be like the Samaritan uh, and uh, we should help strangers as they're lying on the road, right? We should we should be like the Samaritan, but we should not be like the people who are watching Kitty Genovese potentially uh, you know, getting stabbed. Uh, I think what the, the crucial misinterpretation is, uh, is that I think what the parable is actually about is about... Uh, more of an intergroup interpretation, right? So the the the, the crucial bit of um, contrasting the Levite with the Samaritan is that the uh, Samaritans were despised 
by right. uh, Jews uh, at that time. And so you have the person who, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not going to name groups of people that we despise or something like that, but pick, a, pick your favorite despised group. Um, like if that's the person that turned out to help uh, the stranger on the side of the road. And I think that that's something uh, that we don't talk about enough when we talk about the, uh, the Good Samaritan and all that sort of stuff. I don't know that that really ties into your, uh, your thesis that you are going to draw later on, um, but um, uh, I, I, I'd like to add some more nuance into our, uh, the, the cultural conversation around the Good Samaritan. That's great. Yeah, no, you're right. The, um, the, uh, the Samaritans were despised. They were viewed as, um, you know, um, for sure, a, a, you know, a much inferior um, society at the time. Uh, and I think this is easy to check. I don't have my Bible handy, but I think the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan was uh, uh, told as an answer to the question of who is my neighbor? Mm. Is that not is that not right? You know, I would also have to look at the the, the context there, uh, but but yeah, I feel I feel like th- I, I I think that we have taken the the message of it a wee bit out of context. Yes, um, yes, because there is a crucial group division message in it, uh, and uh, uh, something along those lines of be careful of how you draw the divisions in your neighbor who your in group. Who you expect to um, to do yeah. the right thing? Yeah, I think I that's that's uh, that's a good insight for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, here's here's one thing that I'm curious because we talked about a little bit about the process of the book. Was there um, was there anything that surprised you about writing a book for a general audience? Um, I, I had I had written one um, some time ago um, called. Uh, Beyond Revenge, which is actually about the evolution of forgiveness. The title is Beyond Revenge, the Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct. And it's it's a similar kind of book in that I wanted to interact with basic psychology, laboratory result, you know, laboratory findings about revenge and forgiveness. Uh, and in you use them as data to try to understand how we've evolved our capacity for revenge and our our sort of ability to forgive. Um, and I wanted to interact with history to talk a little bit about at least the applications of these insights to um, uh, understanding world affairs, um, international relations, uh, group relations, and, and things like that. So it was a similar, that was a similar kind of endeavor, some evolution, some, some social and cognitive psychology and some sort of reflecting out toward the, the, the wider world where this stuff ends up mattering. So it's kind of a similar book, really, in, in, um, in ambition anyway. Um, so I knew what I was getting into, sort of. Uh, in fact, you know, as I say, I was hoping to do something kind of superficially, um, you know, outward looking, outward facing, trying to interact with history, interact with you know, the modern world and the, you know, the realities of, you know, international relations and, you know, um, the history of the welfare state and stuff like that. Um, Of course, the surprise for me was um, the, uh, the rich story that could be, could be told and, and really the um, kind of relentless uh, progress that we've made 
over the course of 10,000 years and expanding our concern for others. I hadn't, I'd always, I mean, it would be an easy thing to kind of assume, but there's this sort of relentless, almost algorithmic, you know, grinding away that civilization seems to have afforded where we now are capable and apparently interested in, capable of and interested in trying to make people better off on the other side of the world that we will never meet, whose names we will never know and so forth. Um, so obviously that's not something we could have done before we knew there were people suffering on the other side of the world, but it's also, you know, much never mind having the resources to help them. Um, but we also want to, and um, I, I think both of those stories are really cool. How did we get the ability? How, how did we get the desire? Um, so the, the, the way in it, which it, it just seems to be kind of algorithmic pro progress was very impressive to me. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe to sort of bring, uh, bring, bring it sort of full circle, bring it home a little bit. So we were talking, you were talking a little bit earlier about alternatives to, uh, you know, some of the theories that have been put forward about why people behave altruistically. Um, so what, what do you think the core of, yeah, I guess, do you want to, I guess what I'm ultimately trying to ask is what do you think the most important principles are that we should rely on for going forward with society? How do we keep expanding that circle of empathy? Is it just going to do it on its own? Um, is there ways that are there ways that we can increase the rate at which that um, you know sort of our our desire to extend kindness to strangers continues to uh, get larger? What do you think are the most important sort of points uh, looking forward there? I think it's really going to be important to look at how our technological changes um, are going to uh, help or hinder the further expansion of, of our concern for others. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the expansion has been about um, science and technology and the ways that they enable us to study, understand, um, develop solutions for poverty um, and suffering, um, and then uh, tools for helping people in the right kinds of ways, te techno technological help, um, scientific help. So I think it's going to be really valuable to keep an eye on um, information. I mean, it's always, I think really it's about the information and the kinds of information we're, that's, that's, that we have access to and that we're processing and the ways in which we're processing it. So I very much worry about, um, I mean, so far so good. I think the internet has been a, a largely a force for making us better at helping strangers and widening our uh, circles of regard. Um, you know, expanding this, our circles of regard as, as Peter Singer might refer to it. Um, but I do worry about the rise of um, tribalism and um, the kind of conflict of visions that I think is being exacerbated by the uh, tribalism that's being aided and abetted by social media. Um, I think we've found our way into a really uh, 
awful little um, uh, well, sort of stable place that's going to be hard, hard for us to get out of. And those two wells, you know, the blue well and the red well, certainly in the States, is, is making it much harder for us to um, agree on any vision, you know, of, of what the good society really is. So um, I'm extremely concerned about that. Um, I don't know how we uh, restore at the same time as we, we seem to be having difficulty coming to consensus about what the good life is or what the good society is. Um, we, we have actually seen uh, since the seventies uh, in, in, in most, um, in most Western countries, we've seen a kind of slowing down in the um, uh, expansiveness of the welfare state. Most societies have really slowed down the investments they want to make in the, in the welfare state. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's all bad. Um, there may be reasons to stop and pause and, you know, look at the, you know, the economic effects of, you know, how we build our societies, but we're definitely pausing. So, um, and I hope what comes out of that pause is, you know, serious interactions with data to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So um, I think we're in a, I think we're in a phase where the, you know, the, the, the ball's up for grabs in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's going to, I think, I think we have um, some ethical arguments that we need to have about how we want the world to look and what we want our contributions to be. And I, I think we're also in a really interesting place where we've got data that allow us to figure out what works and what doesn't. So I think those are two key issues. What do we value and what, what works? In some ways, these are, the, these are the conversations we've always been having. We just have new techniques for kind of um, uh, uh, evaluating these questions. And now we have really weird kinds of impediments you know, brought about by social media. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, we're sort of a couple minutes over here on time. So uh, it's been really interesting to hear your thoughts on the problems that you've dealt with in this book and then a little bit about how they've been preceded by, you know, previous experiences throughout your career. Thanks. It was fun to talk about this stuff. I really, it's really stimulating to chat with you. Yep. Yeah. You had a great conversation with uh, Mickey and Yoel on uh, uh, two psychologists, uh, uh, two shrinks, four drinks. That's and right. yep. um, that's the new that's the new name they're going to use. And uh, so uh, you covered a lot of great biographical stuff on that, which is the kind of stuff that I would often dig into. And so uh, I hope we were able to cover a little bit of uh, you know unique grounds uh, with, with with some of the the stuff today. So um, yeah, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate it. It was great talking with you. That was my conversation with Michael McCulloch. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I just want to say that uh, I really appreciate you listening and uh, coming back to Cognitive Revolution. So I will be back here with another episode next week. See you here on Cognitive Revolution.